Hi, I'm Ryan, the Unnecessary Rules Guy. I'm Ben, the Valis Player. I'm Helen, the Flux Capacitor Storyteller. And I'm Jared, the Boy Howdy Do I Hate Weight Limits Game Master. And together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. What are we here to talk about today? What's our challenge reading? Today, we are talking about simulationism in our games. How much real life do we want in our game? What do we mean when we talk about simulating real life in games? Okay, people who love science fiction may be familiar with the idea of hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi. Originally, this meant whether the focus was on exploring real-life physical sciences in fiction, like chemistry, physics, and math, i.e. Ben Bova, or a focus on social sciences, like philosophy and politics, like Star Trek. Those are also real life, to be fair. Mm, as an engineer, I'm not sure. Well, anyways, colloquially, people who talk about hard versus soft sci-fi may also be talking about how realistically science and technology are recreated in the story, you know, with allowances made for the fact that it is ultimately still a fictional premise, or how accurately the author attempted to depict them. So, for instance, do your spaceship battles happen on a computer two million miles away from your target, firing at the point in space that you would expect them to be if their velocity holds? Or are we talking flashy, loud, combustible dogfights in space? Yeah, if you have ever read David Weber science fiction, that is what this group of people mean when they are saying hard sci-fi. You are getting three pages of scientific manuals on how his fantasy missiles work before the first battle. The colloquial definition of hard versus soft as scale of adherence to realism can apply outside of sci-fi as well. Anyone who knows about the history of food might reasonably question why in a novel set in 11th century England, there are potatoes on a farmer's dinner table. Or why in the CW show Rain, Mary Queen of Scots was wearing what was obviously a modern prom dress with absolutely no consideration toward period costuming. Because it's a CW show? That's your answer. Well, That's and right. she looked damn good in it. It was the only she, thing I'm that they could afford. She looked damn good in it. It's just, I watched Versailles and it was like, oh, I'm not an expert on historical fashion, but I feel like this, you know, is probably pretty good. And then I went into Rain. It was like, that's a prom dress. These women are all wearing prom dresses. What's happening? What happened is the CW doesn't do research and likes hot people. That's what happened. That's true. Okay, so to start with, some of this is drawn from Ron Edwards' article on the Forge Forum, now archived. I think it was originally in 2001. It's called GNS and Other Matters of Role-Playing Theory. We will include that article in the show notes. He broke role-playing games down to the elements of gamism, narrativism, and simulationism, GNS. These are not hardened rules. It is sloppy to try and assign them to whole games or gamers, but they bear conceptual consideration. We aren't going to focus as much on gamism or narrativism, but for reference, we will share how he defines the terms. So gamism is a focus on the aspects of the experience that are inherent to being a game. So this is things like completing quests, building a sheet for mechanical proficiency at a task, accruing points, what have you. Did your character join every faction in Skyrim that wasn't mechanically opposed to every other faction, seemingly without regard for a consistent narrative? Do you enjoy achievement hunting and 100% completionism? These are good examples of a gamist interest. Narrativism is a high-concept focus on guiding themes within narrative, with all play intended to explore those larger themes in some fashion. These themes are the kind you wrestle with more than resolve, the kind of thing you had to write book reports about in high school. Chekhov's gun is a great metaphor for narrativism. Okay, if you're not familiar with the concept, originally people attribute it to Anton Chekhov. The idea of Chekhov's gun is that, broadly speaking, if you're going to mention a loaded gun on the mantelpiece in Act 1 of the play, by the time the curtain goes down, it has to go off at some point in a relevant way. But the point is not, ah, I included a gun, so now someone has to get shot. The point is, if no one was going to get shot, the gun shouldn't have come up. It wasn't necessary to the narrative. If something isn't relevant to the narrative, it doesn't, or it doesn't serve the story, it should receive less focus than something that does. Narrativism does not mean no consideration is given to mechanical rigor. It means that story content and mechanical subsystems 
derive their significance and meaning from how they interact with that high concept story. Like story first narrativism. This is actually a perfect place to fit my favorite word because the term ludonarrative describes exactly this from a mechanical perspective. Mechanics designed in such a way as to reinforce key narrative concepts. I know we've made you define it before, but for all of our potentially new listeners, why don't you go ahead and bore, I mean, describe all of us with the definition of ludonarrative again. I would love to, Jared. Thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> I'm here for you, man. Ludonarrative is how the mechanics and story elements interact and support each other. So to give a very quick example, if you're familiar with Warhammer Fantasy or the Dragon Age games, magic in those games is corruptive. So if you have a mechanic in the game where using magic can lead to you being corrupted and going mad or mutating or whatever, that is ludonarrative. That is the mechanics in your game helping to support the story aspect of mages sometimes go crazy and magic is dangerous. That brings us back to simulationism, which Ron Edward defined as a focus on exploring the full implications of a specific premise. In contrast to narrativism, where the focus is building up to a high concept, simulationism builds out, fully inhabit an idea. And it may be a relatively simple idea. A focus on simulationism in gaming can very well be finding your fun in, in making mountains out of molehills. In a narrativist focus, overall themes of the game are there to provide structure, interest, conflict. They aren't necessarily there to make questions that you're going to answer. A simulationist focus is about answering those questions. Maybe that involves needing a resolution mechanics tool to be intricately recreate the topic of exploration. Maybe that becomes a central generator of plot and externalized character motivation. Example, you are a brand new vampire. You can't go out in the sun, but your landlord is coming over for a property inspection tomorrow at 10 a.m. and you have to go to work the next day bright and early at 7 a.m. Go. You might be wondering, is that vampire example simulationist exploring all the facets of what it's like to be a vampire in the modern world if you aren't generationally wealthy? Or is it narrativist exploring vampirism as a metaphor for being disconnected from society that is not built for you and yet ultimately still dependent on that society? Well, that's what we're trying to drive at. These are not rigid bins to put your game in or your players into. These are useful frameworks to think about parts of games that you enjoy and why. This is vocabulary to describe the ways of interacting with and conceptualizing a game. Any and all of these traits are present in just about any game you can play, whether inherent to the text as written or collaborated on by your table. Okay, for everybody who might be listening who glazes over in their brain when they hear words with more than three syllables, let's just put it like real plain and simple right here. Let me try and break it down. Okay, gameism is the parts of the game that are simply a game. You roll the die, that's a random number generator, and you add these things to it and you're trying to get to this number. All the things that are simply a game. That's what they exist solely as. Narrativism is talking about all the things that are there to support the story. And simulationism is trying to intricately explore an entire concept. A real world concept. So we use Ron Edwards' article and definition as simulationism as our jumping off point to discuss what happens when players or players in a GM or GM on their own are at odds in their focus and interest. So in our context, we're going to use a more colloquial take on simulationism. We're going to focus just on attempting to replicate a certain subject, subject matter, situation, etc. to explore in a game in a way that as closely mirrors real life as you can make, rendering, of course, in mechanics and story. The underlying engine of almost all games is a mix of both math and stories. The math should respect the stories, and the stories should respect the math. How that works day-to-day -day would depend on the game on your table. When you build hyper-precision into a game, you push the math and the story to extremes. This may come in the form of like gritty mechanics or extensive narrative consequences for seemingly small actions. This can be as simple as like, we're playing in a Mad Max desert game. It is time to keep track of how much water you have and how much sun exposure you get. You might have expected the gritty mechanics, but extreme narrative consequences? If you live in the U.S. and you don't have a permanent mailing address, you 
fall off the face of the planet as far as major civic and commercial services are concerned. So in Changeling the Lost, for instance, your identity being taken by a fey construct is a major part of the game. A newly returned Changeling with no human identity to fall back on, much less a place to get mail, has some very real bureaucratic challenges to overcome. But these challenges aren't necessarily everyone's cup of tea, so getting a new ID or a place to stay is often a plot point for the first introduction to local NPCs. By that same token, you can also tone the precision way down and zoom out from the action. This might be associated with simplified or eliminated mechanics and either hand-waving narrative consequences to have whatever fits our story best or sending in everybody's favorite Deus Ex Machina. Jared, for our new listeners, would you like to explain what a Deus Ex yes. Machina actually Wait is? Wait turn that back on me! Woo! So Deus Ex Machina is when somebody or something just shows up and solves your problem for you. It can be as simple as like, Hey, you're hunting a werewolf for the first time? Here, have a bunch of silver bullets. To as extreme as an NPC shows up and saves your lives and kills the bad guys and yay! I will say there's nothing wrong with this in some contexts if you're going to introduce a very important NPC. Van Helsing has to show up at some point in your game. I mean, Deus Ex Machina is in general to be avoided except when it really serves your story. A lot of the time it takes the fun. Anything that takes the focus away from your players is a thing you have to be careful with, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't ever do it. It just right. means don't do it all the time. While this may help move the narrative along and get through sticking points that no one's really interested in, you know, oh, I'm sorry, you need to go to the DMV and fill out this form. You might you might pass on that. If you employ the deus ex machina or hand-waving things too often, it'll leave your story feeling disconnected and hollow, like the character's actions don't really matter. Wait, Ryan, you're saying that in games you run, you don't make your players do their characters' taxes every April? Well, I make them roll for it to see if they botch. <laughs> that would actually be really funny. I went in a vampire game. I was playing a PC ghoul. And so around every tax time, I would just drop in character bits to the person who was playing the venture my character was associated with, implying that their taxes were particularly annoying that year and get things in character. Got away with a lot around tax time. Nice. It's just a fun story bit. That's all. So on another note, we may talk about guns a bunch this episode because how guns work is as much a challenge to represent in an exciting way through game math as it is in movie logic. So let's say your character is operating a scope rifle and would like to shoot a target at a fairly extreme distance. And in real life, these sorts of shots, even with the advent of additional equipment to assist the shooter, are extremely complex and rely on experience with a lot of environmental variables. And usually a spotter. If you're making this shot in a video game, you could have a visual element to supplement this process. Different heads-up displays, different stats, other ways built in the game to let you interact with the idea of dialing in your scope. But if you're playing a TTRPG, that visual element is all in the theater of the mind. It's all in how you describe it. What's more, between you, your storyteller, and all the people you play with, how many of you have a lot of direct experience firing a scoped rifle to hit a target from an extreme distance? In America, that answer may not be zero, but in the majority of cases, it also won't be 100%. And furthermore, how much time do you, the player, or the rest of the players at your table, or the GM, want to spend on making the experience of that shot as true to life as possible? I'm not passing judgment here. People should do what is fun for them and what is fun for their table. But hearing you say that aloud, the idea of having that in a game that I am running makes me want to scream and go like hide in a closet. Like making that shot, if you know how to do it, is 15 minutes of setup at least. You know, it's checking winds, it's checking distance, it's measuring curvature, it's taking into account the math of like your bullet velocity and all of this shit. And the idea of doing that on a piece of paper in game makes me want to vomit. The only reason I could ever think of doing that is if I had a player who was a flat earther and I had to make them do the math based on the curvature of the earth. That is so rude and amazing. That's well, real uh, good. GMs out there, do not do this. Do not punish your players. Do not be rude to your players. Do not cause conflict intentionally <laughs> with your players. Also, now I want to do that. This is totally a do as we say, not as we do moment. I mean, I've never done it. <laughs> you would absolutely do it, though. 
I very likely would. I mean, but anyways, the downside is, is we're never going to play with flat earthers. That means, you know. Downside? Upside? <laughs> this break brought to you by politics. Okay. Anyway. It's not politics. The earth is a sphere. Anyway, go on. Oh, God. Actually, it's a geoid, but that's not important. Good. Back to Don't the. Make <laughs> me start smoking again, please, God. Wait, when did you smoke? Anyway. So, the example of the scoped rifle is a bit leading, and we don't want to skew the narrative here. Adding simulated true-to-life accuracy to the scenarios in the game can be a good way to engage players in the action, and it can add depth to the environment. So if you're running a horror game set in an Antarctic outpost during the winter, and the characters have to plan how they use their resources and treat outside as a truly hazardous environment, that can create a lot of opportunities for strategic play. But you're running a horror game set in an Antarctic outpost during the winter, how much of that resource management should be assumed? How much do you need to flag to your players ahead of time with a quick, hey, by the way, y'all should read up on the weather danger classification ratings for Antarctic weather. Frostbite sets in real fast when the wind chill is minus 75 Fahrenheit. Okay, it's easy to see how the environment can become part of the horror if the game is about being trapped inside with a monster during a hurricane blizzard on the exposed spine of a glacier. Fun fact, your characters are potentially farther away from any other human being in your Antarctic research base than are the astronauts on the ISS. But this is definitely a balancing act. Let's say a game has hunger, thirst, and exhaustion mechanics, but acquiring enough money to pay for food, water, and shelter takes up all of your character's energy for a day. Then by the time you have recovered their energy, they are getting hungry again and have to go back to work. A reasonable person might wonder if you're ever going to actually get to join the resistance and help free your village from the local tyrant and his bandit militia. I know that we are spending a lot of time in this episode trying to explain how things are working and not take a side pro-increased simulationism or anti, but let me be real clear. Let, let me ruin that right now. Because <laughs> I have a definite opinion. I think that trying to accurately simulate what is happening in the real world in your game is great and a lot of fun if that is what your game is about. If it is a dad game, you mean? No, I mean, like, if you're doing that Mad Max game we were talking about earlier, keeping track of water and fuel totally makes sense, and we should measure our fuel expenditure and all of that. But if you're doing a Dune game and your game is about gathering spice or whatever, fuel is not something you should track. It is not what your game is about. Water is still what your game is about. You should absolutely track that. But like, don't track and get hyper detailed about shit that doesn't matter or your players are going to start pulling out their hair and leaving it around your house. Of course, we're also going to address when one of the players is the one who gets really excited about tracking that. We'll talk about that in bit but I, I just as a gm just as a general like if it's part of the purpose of your game go nuts if it's not part of the purpose of your game have a light touch what you don't want to play excel the rpg i, I know people who do and i hate them so let's set the difficulty what are the highs and lows of trying to recreate real life with high precision in a game okay let's clarify what we're describing here is extremes in precision are not just like being presented with any kind of narrative challenge you don't like. It's just that as with most things we consume, we are most aware of it when it's not working for us. And again, as with most things we consume, just because it doesn't work for you doesn't mean it doesn't work for me or someone else or vice versa. This is why it's important to be clear on the difference between this thing is bad and I don't like this thing. That is to say, this discussion is going to be about the concept of trying to replicate real-life processes or inserting varyingly niche real-life knowledge into your game. So let's talk about the highs. Fascinating world-building detail and opportunities if you design your true-to-life storytelling devices in a way that invites people to explore them and enjoy them, you've instantly made your story richer. And maybe we've all just learned something, like that astronauts in space see flashes of light when they close their eyes, because without an atmosphere, they're being pelted by radiation at wavelengths that can pass through both the station and their eyelids to stimulate their visual receptors. You can use real-life facts to help you build a specific emotion in a scene, or foreshadow plot points in an interesting way. Do this, it's fucking neat. For instance, did you know that freshwater mussel spawn are parasites that brood in fish gills until they get large enough to drop off, allowing them to spread from their birthplace as fish travel up and downstream. You should use that in your next horror game. 
man, that is not where I would have gone with foreshadowing plot points. But I'm just saying. <laughs> okay. I mean, that just depends on what game you're running now, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Chekhov's freshwater mussels. In that same way, you can use those details to seed plot hooks and secrets. Perhaps if the autopsy report of a drowning victim in your game describes microscopic shards of calcium carbonate studying their lungs, that'll be a good time for one of the characters to remember a weird fact they know about muscle larvae. See, Jared? Yeah, okay there, boss. <laughs> so in this example, adding true-to-life details usually adds complexity to the narrative, uh, and this means that you'll have more details available to weave into clues and secrets. Try thinking like a retired busybody who the local cops keep finding at the site of murders. Every detail you add, no matter how subtle, can change how your players see the world when taken in a larger context. And finally, who doesn't love a moment in the spotlight to do legitimately cool shit that you've built your character to do? TM. Have you ever had a campaign-long scheme snap beautifully into place by the final session? Or pulled a counterpoint out of your back pocket that made the story's teller sit back and go, holy shit, that's wild. These sorts of things can be super rewarding and make players feel really engaged with the narrative. The world is full of cool stuff, so when your players bring it out, reward it. But again, specifically on the GM side, I just feel like I need to put this out there. You can't do this too much. If every clue, every detail is with some obscure real world fact that you know and your players don't, by the end of session three, your players are going to feel like they're writing like their dissertation and nobody's here for that. So that's a beautiful transition, Jared. Thank you. To the potential lows of simulationism, let's start with variable knowledge or everyone doesn't know everything and they don't have to. GMs, does this sound familiar? Hint, hint, I bet it does. Have you ever had a player tell you what they want their character to do using a skill on their character sheet but described it in a way that you personally know would never ever work? I was writing an urban fantasy game. A player asked me if their character could try and track another character using the GPS satellite signals to find their phone. That's not how that works. Maybe you've had this happen from the player side, where you told the storyteller your idea and how your character would go about implementing it, and the storyteller was torn about your explanation. In either case, a moment like this can leave you at a crossroads, especially in a situation where the yes or no depends more on the narrative justification, not bearing out than whether or not something falls within the scope of the mechanics. I do a lot of stuff with acoustics for a living, and I once played a TTRPG with another sound guy where they were GMing, and somebody was like, I want to listen for the intruder. And the GM was like, well, you can't because you're in a room with a lot of reflective surfaces, so you wouldn't be able to tell which direction the noise was coming from. And that, while true, is nonsense. Whether or not a character can make a computer skill check to accomplish a goal is ultimately going to be up to the participants in that moment, right? Whether or not they can listen for the bad guy in this room full of angular metal stuff. You can set a difficulty appropriate to a particularly outlandish justification, but if a player or the GM does not realize that their explanation is outlandish, that can cause confusion. I.e., in the example I just gave, the other players are like, what do you mean I can't listen for a bad guy? Everybody doesn't know everything everything about everything except for your gms they know everything trust that's me. not true <sighs> patently untrue but also i don't expect people to know as much about navigational satellites as i do so that's fine whatever you do in this situation just remember just be cool yeah gm i was just telling a story about there is absolutely not one single justifiable reason in the universe to be an ass about this whichever side of the equation you're on so next up variable interest or yes that's nice but can we get back to the game now we don't all care about mushrooms that much example see above <laughs> About the vampire who has to figure out what they're going to do about their 10 a.m. appointment with their landlord. Do not care. Maybe one person at the table is extremely interested in exploring every single nuance and detail about the bureaucratic foibles in a new vampire's unlife. That's okay. Maybe everyone else would like to use their cool new vampire powers at some point. Please, you have to balance both of these things. Or maybe this is about a specific topic of interest that is rapidly expanding beyond the scope of either the narrative or the mechanics. 
Oh boy, howdy, we have that one a lot. Perhaps you're playing a superhero game and the person with electricity powers is scampering off down a rabbit hole about atmospheric energy circulation, red sprites, and St. Elmo's fire, which would be fine. Except the mechanics and mechanisms you have in the game and the ones that they are proposing you use for how the powers work are starting to get extremely complicated. Why, Helen, where did that example come from? I don't know. I don't know, Ryan. I don't know why would you why you would be assuming that I would be the result of that. Shut There's up. a reason, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I just know a lot of things about St. Elmo's Fire, and I need everybody to leave me alone about it. <laughs> this is All what right. happens when we let you see behind the curtain, listeners. <laughs> we get defensive, but honest. Okay. <laughs> the sticking point here can derive from mismatched expectations about a game. Maybe it's a misunderstanding, or maybe it's just someone getting carried away and forgetting to check with back with the table. Everyone comes to the table with their own lifetime of experience, their own interests, and the things they are excited to tell stories about. Sometimes our joy carries us away, and we forget that not everyone is ex as excited about our thing as we are. But when this comes from a place of joy, try and find a way to encourage that joy. It might be a weird joy, but if your friend is excited about something, the last thing you should do is treat the topic with disdain or frustration. Note that safety mechanics basic humanity and the SND all Wait, 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 wait. Apply. What's the SND? Uh, the standard Nazi disclaimer. Oh yeah, for sure. So there's never an excuse for anyone to violate someone else's boundaries. It's also up to every individual at the table to stop, think, and ask themselves. Just because that didn't come up at session zero safety mechanics discussion, could it still make someone uncomfortable? If you're the one who is uncomfortable, remember, you never have to tolerate that. You deserve to feel safe and welcome for who you are, not in spite of it. So I want to give another like brief example where completely in good faith, this went like way over the lines and I had a player get really uncomfortable and I eventually noticed it and stopped it, but like really wish the one player who caused it had been more observant and also wish the player who was uncomfortable had said something. But we had a guy in our group who was a doctor and was doing some field medicine as a role and was just like accurately describing removing a bullet from a gut wound mm -hmm. as their description before giving the game. And like most of us were like, oh, that's really neat and super detailed. But there was somebody who was a little squeamish and hadn't ever thought that we would get that detail. So hadn't brought it up in session zero. I thought they were going to barf on the tape. Anyway, circling back around, you won't always understand the weird thing your friend is excited about, but like, go with it. When my hunter character got hooves, I made an infographic for Jared breaking down the differences between the major families and Fufto structures of Artiodactyla and Parasodactyla. No, like really for real. And then was like, in case you want to include this in explanations when people find the footprints. And I responded, I'm so glad you made this, but I think we're good. I mean, there was always the chance that my character rolled nine successes sure. when I was trying to follow her footprints. So look, we know that the answer to mismatched expectations is communicating sincerely, openly, Ooh. and in good faith. This is going to be something you just have to get to the heart of with the players and or the GM. Okay, so it's time to pick your approach. Let's talk about how different approaches to simulating reality are presented in other games for better or for worse. So what are our thoughts on how some games have approached it? Man, that sigh tells us that we're starting with the bad ones first, okay? <laughs> yep. Uh... <laughs> Again, bad in our opinion. Yes. No, not for this first one. This one's objective. The rest of well, them opinion. This okay. one, right? Okay, so from my experiences with the Fantasy Flight Star Wars game, it was a very interesting system. I know people who both really like it and who really hate it. Yo. Yeah. But everyone I've talked to struggled with the mechanics of flying ships, which it's Star Wars. That comes up. There were in-depth rules for ship-to-ship -ship dogfights, because again, it's Star Wars. But the basic difficulty to do anything with your ship was bumped above the standard difficulty of the game. And I don't mean like doing fancy maneuvers or trying to do tricks. I mean the basic roles. They made a long list of things you can do in the middle of a dogfight, even if you're not the pilot, because they want everyone to be able to participate. Things like making emergency repairs, shooting at another ship, inspiring your allies, whatever. But they were all more difficult than the standard difficulty for the game. And that meant that even though everyone was expected to participate, if you hadn't specially made your character 
to really excel on one of those roles, you are more likely to cause problems than to help out. Even pilots struggled because the basic role you made to fly the ship every turn was so hard. Ooh. Yeah, the, that's, not, that's not great design. The number of times playing that game where your pilot is like, I'm gonna turn, and the game is like, mm, no, you're not. You're gonna fly straight. They abstract the distance and dogfights, right? Because, like, it's space. You don't need to get into that. But, like, you had to make a roll to maintain your speed every turn. And if you failed, you slowed down. And it was a hard roll. I feel like maintaining your speed in space ought to be one of the easiest things. Requires no effort in any way? Yes. It, no, yeah, it was the easiest thing. Because you just don't do anything. So the idea and was, you, you know, it's, it wasn't maintaining your speed. It was maintaining your speed without destroying your ship by hitting something. Okay, that's fair. Sure. Maintaining your speed in this vast openness. Right. In a dogfight. In a dogfight, sure. That's But fair. even still, it was set above the normal difficulty for the game. So the pilots, the characters who are made to do this were still like, I can't. You just had like two bumper cars that were shooting at each other. It was really weird. And this is a good example of picking one thing to get hyper specific and nitty gritty on. But at the same time, we're going to make sure that you're really thinking about complex ship flying and such in Star Wars. But at the same time, your dogfight fighting in space. With lasers that make a sound when you shoot. With lasers that in make space. a sound when you shoot and, and explode. Yes. So they picked a specific thing to unnecessarily expand on and then just let the other thing, uh, you know, and then you fly around like, anyway, Modifius made a Fallout 4 game. I don't know if you played Fallout 4. I played Fallout 4 for a bit. It's fun and utterly forgettable. Yes. Wow. Yes. So, but Shots here's the thing. It's just true. I have a friend who loves playing the Fallout games on survival mode. That's their thing. It's not my thing. The Modefius Fallout 4 system has mechanics for thirst, hunger, and exhaustion. And after playing for a few weeks and trying to puzzle through the truly monstrous item salvage system <laughs> that required one of the players in the game to finally throw up their hands in disgust and put together a script in Java to do it for us because there were simply too many tables spread out throughout the book. I finally just came to the general conclusion. I would like to stop scraping by in a post-capitalist apocalypse hellscape to do anything other than try and feed myself for just one day, please. Is there anything else in this game? No? Okay. They really captured the survival difficulty of the video game where you spend most of the game just trying to survive and eat and drink and sleep. Yes, but I wasn't there for that. I was there for the charming robot nonsense. Yes. Because I live in the post-capitalist hellscape. <laughs> I just want to play a game. Yes. Meanwhile, my character could do hard drugs all day long and have no negative effects. Yep. Picking weird things to expand on. So another great example. I'm sorry. It's not a great example. It's an example of a bad thing. It's a great example of a bad thing. Yes. Fifth edition Shadowrun tried to do a lot of things. Some of those, it did better than others. Some elements were an improvement from the previous edition. Some were not. Oof. But the one set of mechanics I have never seen anyone actually use, even when the opportunity presented itself specifically for it, was the in-depth explosive mechanics. I don't mean throwing a grenade. I mean sitting down to figure out how much plastic explosive you need to blow a hole in a specific thing. There was a role for that. And I don't just mean make this role if you fail, you add too much or too little. I mean, they included a logarithmic chart, a real life logarithmic chart to calculate <laughs> the mass of explosive needed for a specific level of damage. I have listened to actual ex-military players who had done that in real life laugh and say they weren't doing that for their game. Let's get to a medium example. Mutants and Masterminds. It is a superhero game at its base. It is a game that wants you to be able to make any power, any ability, any type of thing. That's what the game promises here. What they do really well is 
frankly, not getting all riffs on us, not trying to make every single blast a different power with different stats. They're just like, do you want an energy blast? Do you have an energy blast? Flavor it how you want to flavor it. Here are the rules. And that's really good and it lets you do stuff. Where the bad is, and that's why this is our medium example, is when it comes to mixing powers, can just get super nitty gritty for no reason. My favorite example of this is my first time playing Mutants and Masterminds, we were describing what we wanted to do and somebody was like, just for the flavor of our game, was like, oh, why don't you play a Venom-like character where like, you're a smart, regular guy and when, you know, the symbiote climbs over you, you get a new set of powers. And I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. And then I realized that I had two different character sheets that were both four pages long, both with a ton of powers that completely interacted with the world differently depending which one I was on and which one I was off. And oh, what the hell happens on the turn where it actually joins me? Which set am I using? Good thing they don't have rules for that. Superhero games are notorious for being able to build a character in one system and them being relatively inexpensive, moving to a different system and building approximately the same character with a slightly different set of mechanics, but ultimately getting to the same place. And then being the most expensive build in the party just because of how that other game handles certain costs and allows you to put things together. But Mutants and Masterminds is also one of the games that has the distinction of being able to build your character, walk away for a couple of days, come back, rebuild your character from a fresh sheet, and save 25 points. Getting to either the same place or slightly better just by getting to the same ultimate power goal using different build options and flavoring them differently. That's why it's medium. I can tell you right now how you should have built your character. But let's move on. It's better than Palladium with their weight and mass being the same thing. (laughs) And also the thing about the Palladium game, I just made the riffs joke, Palladium makes riffs. Literally their first superhero book had 32 different blast powers. There was lightning blast, ice blast, bubble blast. There was a bubble blast. No, Jared, you're forgetting the best part of the blast power. Fire blast and plasma blast were different. Yep. There was also a time blast. I don't know how you blast time and any. Okay, moving on. To be fair, on. remember when McMagneto briefly controlled the electromagnetic spectrum? <laughs> I do. <laughs> I remember when he pulled his molecules back together with the power of magnetism. <laughs> So, superhero games, they're all over the place. Anyway. All right, on to a good example. There's a sidebar in the Chronicles of Darkness core rulebook that sets some very clear expectations about firearms. Basically, it says, guns do not work like this in real life. That's not the point in a modern fantasy horror game, which is perfectly fair. Establishing clear expectations for how weapon rules will be abstracted to support the overarching themes of the game is a perfectly respectable way to approach the question. Can I tell you how much I love when games do this with any system? When they're just like, look, we don't care about the real life. We care about this is what makes for a good game with our goals. Hallelujah. Right. Achieve what you're trying to achieve. Give us the rules we need to tell a good story. No one is going to play Twilight 2000 with the Chronicles of Darkness system. They don't need that kind of military simulation. I don't know what Twilight 2000 is. Well, I'll be happy to talk to you about it after this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, moving on to another good example. We don't have very many examples we like of this, but the ones we do like, we like a lot. GURPS. If you've never heard of the game GURPS, it stands for Generic Universal Role Playing System. Dun, dun, dun. It's well made. It's fairly streamlined. For the most part, the big problem is that there is an utterly overwhelming number of things you can do because they have put out a supplement over the years for everything. And I mean everything. There are literally hundreds of supplements over the four editions of the game. But here's the thing. Those supplements are actually the reason GURPS became popular. When the writers developed those books, they really researched them. They not only put down related mechanics, but wrote about why they worked that way and how to run games that included them. They gave you the justification and how to tell good stories. That's the good part, right? Super gritty rules, what we've been complaining about in other categories, but here they taught you how to run them well in your games. A blam. Also, 
an important note. In the core book, they even have a little sidebar that's like, yeah, there's a lot here. You're not going to use most of it, and you shouldn't try to. You need to pick out the things that are going to be important for your game, and you need to ignore everything else. They went a step further than even just pick out the things that you need for your game. They even taught you how to figure out which things you need for your game. Like, way to go, Gerbs. I mean, frankly, that's a lesson that could be carried forward to a lot of the stuff that comes out for D&D and Pathfinder. Yeah. There's a lot there, and maybe it doesn't all need to be in the same place for your campaign. They even do a really good example of setting down and explaining, these are what the skill ratings on your character sheet mean, and in general, these are for situations under duress, like in combat. If you're looking at it and thinking, man, I don't know, I only have a 55% chance to do this. Well, you have a 55% chance to make that skill roll when someone is shooting at you, right? You don't roll that daily for your day job and like, oh, came home Tuesday. Yeah, I, I just failed my job entirely today. Sorry. No, no. Okay, so let's talk about our experiences now. What do we think about good applications of realism in the mechanics or in the narrative? What distinguishes it for us? First, use that increase complexity to build the story, literally or figuratively. This is the biggest thing for me. It is improv o'clock, ladies and gentlemen. You should either yes and or no but. Never just no. If the scenario or device is not inviting players in, you're limiting the story. Hell yeah. So going back to the example with tracking someone's phone using GPS satellite signals, that's not how navigational satellites work, but we know that phone tracking is a thing by other much more terrestrial methods. This is a very easy no but to apply if you even feel the need. Which is another point. If knowing the finer detail of something is so utterly tangential to the game as to be completely irrelevant, and you are not positive that gaining the knowledge of how it actually works would thrill and delight the person you're playing with, you really need to bring it up at all no 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 i have no problem you know if jared says something like hey jared let me tell you about satellites but i'm not necessarily going to interrupt anybody else's flow about that all right second point use the knowledge to spotlight someone or something in or out of character for instance give a player a chance to show off something that they are knowledgeable about like one of the people on this podcast is an electrical engineer who works in theaters if someone else were to run a game session with a mystery set in a modern theater, he'd probably be a really great person to talk to about how theaters are set up. You can also present characters an opportunity to shine or be challenged by circumstances. Remember that example above about a character with electrical powers in a superhero game? Did you know that pure distilled water is a pretty poor conductor of electricity? Science makes for excellent villainous curveballs to force characters to think on their feet. Use it not to frustrate your players, but to help tangibly mark character growth, narratively or mechanically. So you know when you play a game that has a backpack or something and it's only got like five item slots? You've been playing this game for hours and hours you finally upgraded to like a 15 slot bag. Or you know that feeling when you get your first real game changing weapon upgrade or you could suddenly do a dodge roll in combat and you're mashing that button truly as often as you like to spam your to hit? They're not super realistic recreations of real life conditions, but tangible progression through complex milestones can both give structure to a campaign and propel character growth and player investment. Perhaps a better example is hearkening back to our previous episode about world building geography. Parchment literally does not grow on trees. If your spellcaster has spent the first third of the campaign fermenting their own iron gall ink and saving their spare coin to buy parchment, then reaching a point where they can just acquire good vellum or exotic inks without needing to worry about the money is a great way to let them know that they have capital A arrived. But remember, what matters is that just transition is meaningful to the player, not the character. The character is themselves just a sheet of paper. If the player isn't excited about the idea of that progression or about the idea of managing resource scarcity for their class, it's not going to be fun. They have to be read in on that. Okay, it's time for me to throw in a tangential example that I think really sums up what we're trying to say here. I teach poetry. The first lesson that I tell people when I teach them poetry is specific is the best general. Rather than using, you know, I love so-and-so, say why you love so-and-so. You love them because they're the first person who ever held the scars from their hand. 
great, way more interesting. But the caveat to that is if specific is the best general, if your details matter, then which details you choose to share have to be there for a reason. Including details about everything is awful. Including details that give your players a sense of excitement or drive narrative or show change and give contrast to the world. These are all good things, but you have to choose what we are doing. Players, I would say, just not to belabor this point, in the same way, you can feel free to develop all of the character backstory, all of the character, just explore absolutely everything that you want from that pile of research and all of those things that you write and all of that love that you pour into the idea that you are trying to explore. Pick out the things that are most significant and important and that you think will connect best, both for your storyteller and the other players at the table. You don't have to give them everything. And it will potentially be better if you take some of what you have and offer it to them if you think there is a tie. But you don't have to share everything. But at the same time, you can have all of that. That can all be for you. All right, so we've already started to slip into it. Let's officially transition. Time to roll the dice. How do you balance simulating true-to-life mechanics in your games? I know that I am a broken damn record. I know that our whole podcast is a broken damn record on this point. Communicate and be kind to one another. Set expectations early and then revisit them often. Life changes and just because you're excited to engage in a rigorous point-by-point scheme to dismantle the evil empire in June doesn't mean that you'll still have the same goals or level of engagement after playing for a couple of months. This is okay. This isn't even a reflection of the game. Life happens. Your excitement is what gives life and vibrancy to the game. Your fellow players' excitement is what gives life and vibrancy to the game. Don't do anything to diminish it, to ruin it. Channel it instead. This is a shared responsibility that falls on everybody at the table, falls under the original mandate for working together to shape the story. There is a difference between being realistic and being pedantic, and taking a beat to stop and think before you speak can help you see that difference if it starts to get murky. Howard, I just want you to say that first sentence over and over again, because that is the most important thing. I think that could be a one sentence episode on this topic. Be kind, be honest, be nice, do good. That's it. Just don't be a dick. That's it. So we're playing games. They're all fantasy of some stripe. Just suspend your disbelief. And finally, the rule of cool is there for you. Most of these games were not a collaboration by the professors at your local community college. I know, this is shocking. They were written by people whose knowledge of how things work is not infinite. Some Sometimes they're gonna get it wrong. If you and your table feel like the best thing to do for the story is to just ignore the rules for, say, poisoning that are in the book, if there are any rules for poisoning in the book, and just come up with something else to support a poisons expert character, follow your dreams. And don't forget, if you find yourself rewriting or adding on enough subsystems to a set of rules, then maybe ask yourself if there isn't another game out there that would suit your group better. Oh man, I wish I had been taught that lesson like 10 years before. Before I learned it. There's a whole <laughs> world of tabletop gaming out there. Someone is trying to have the same fun as you. You just have to find them. And they're probably the guy who made Lance. Or at least they're on itch.io. Um, <laughs> Go give some indies some money. Okay, it is time for my favorite part of the episode. It is time for Helen's Spells, where Helen gets to go on a rant of her choosing. Helen, what are you spelling today? All right, so behind the curtain a little bit, once upon a time when we were doing uh, interseason content for this podcast, I recorded an interseason content piece by myself that was just me talking about navigational satellites. And I shared it with the guys and the guys listened to it and they were all like, wow, this is really great. Uh, this isn't a science podcast though. It was so good and had nothing to do with our podcast. I said, you're absolutely right. I don't know why I did this. I think I was stressed. Navigational satellites are not tracking you. That's not what they do. GPS stands for Global Positioning Satellite. GNSS stands for Global Navigational Satellite System, which is the generic term. GPS refers specifically to the United States constellation of satellites. There are many constellations of navigational satellites, all of which are referred to as GNSS. These satellite systems do two things primarily. One of those things is to repeat a time signal blasted 
pretty much to anywhere and the void around them and try not to fall into the atmosphere and burn up. It is a ballet of math and it is beautiful and I think about it a lot. However, <laughs> comma, they do not track you. What your GPS receiver or your GNSS receiver does is it listens for that repeating satellite code, which has a timestamp, and it tries to find that code coming from as many satellites as it can receive from. GPS, the GPS constellation is generally set up so that at any given time, there are a minimum of four satellites above any given place on the Earth, with exceptions for the poles. But most of the modern receiver systems are able to pick up a number of other satellite systems, such as GLONASS, which is the Russian constellation, or Baidu, which is the Chinese constellation, or Galileo, which is the EU constellation. So at any given time, a receiver will almost certainly get a handful of more satellites. It needs a bare minimum of four, that is three for distance and one for time. It is calculating its distance from those satellites and using that extra timestamp to, by doing a backwards calculation with the speed of light and accounting for distortion through the atmosphere and such, place itself in relation to those satellites on a series of overlapping spheres conceptually, and then from there figure out where you are. But it's not sending anything to the satellites. It is just listening, and those satellites are just broadcasting. Your GPS receiver is not a snitch. Your phone is a snitch, because your phone is always doing something very similar, but with cell towers. It is, I guarantee you almost certainly it is not using GPS, because there's no reason why it should. That requires just so much more math and processing, and is much less accurate than they would be able to put on your smartphone when they can just use cell towers. And if your phone is not in airplane mode, it doesn't even have to be using Wi-Fi. It will still see and be registered at Wi-Fi points that it passes if it is not on airplane mode. And it is constantly conveying that information about its position with regard to the cell towers, which to be fair is how 911 finds you. If you call from a cell phone, it figures out where down sometimes to the antenna on a cell tower you are calling from and then routes that to the appropriate communication center. But also it's how they find people who do crimes because if you go by Wi-Fi points or wherever you are at any given time, if you have your phone with you, if your phone is broadcasting, it is going to get picked up. Your phone is a snitch. See, I've always said that the easiest way to like in a superhero comic figure out like who's Superman? Like, well, uh, let's check the phone records and see whose phone changes towers multiple times a second. Yep. Nah, he doesn't need a cell phone. He's got super hearing. Uh, he needs a cell phone because in theory he's dating someone. And if he just said, I, I don't have a cell phone for reasons. But if you say something, I'll hear you. Yeah, no. That's, see, that's not gonna fly. <laughs> this just got real creepy real fast. That was awesome. Exactly. We went anyway, rant over. You cannot track people using your satellite system and your GNSS receiver as long as it is not on Wi-Fi and it is purely for GNSS receiving. It is not a snitch and I will not hear any more slander about GPS units. Anyway, that was all. And everybody who is listening, now Helen said that she recorded the thing about satellites and how they worked. What you just heard was like a quarter of it. Well, it's because I didn't go into all the detail and it was messy and I, and I didn't, but also I didn't have anything to read off of. I just did that off the cuff. You're welcome. <laughs> right. I'm Ryan, your unnecessary rules guy. I'm Ben, the Valis player. I'm Helen, the flux capacitor storyteller. And I'm Jared, the I hate weight limits game master. And together we're the starting equipment podcast. Thank you for listening and join us next week. Our second season is almost over.
Special Cup.